So we're continuing on, actually, believe it or not, with our series. Ordinarily, I preach a special sermon for our anniversary. I'm not going to do that today, uh, in a way, and because I'm going to stay in our series, because I think our series actually fits rather nicely with our anniversary, because I've been saying for, I don't know, about 10 months now, that we're going to be in a period of change now for Spirit Chapel. I believe that. I believe that God is going to take us to a new place, and that's going to be an exciting place for us, but we have to be willing to change because I believe that's where God's taking us. So I'm going to stick with the text and jump off from there, tell you a little bit about Spirit Chapel as we approach, well, actually we are at our fifth year anniversary. So we're going to pick up the text from, the, from, from last week, but let me, pick, let, me, let me kind of catch everybody up if, in case you weren't here for that sermon. We're, we're on the, the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion who's a Roman soldier uh, in charge of other Roman soldiers. But Cornelius is interesting because even though he's a Gentile and he's actually a guy who would probably be fairly ruthless as a soldier, he has found a way to be righteous in God's sight. He has followed as much as the tradition as he has. He's been very good to the Jewish people. And God wants to bring him into his family. In order to do that, he has to have someone lead him to Jesus. And the person he's picked to lead him is Peter. The only problem with that is at this moment in Peter's life, he's still completely a kosher Jew. He eats kosher, and he follows the customs and the laws of the temple, which set him apart from Gentiles. He would not be allowed to go to a Gentile's house and preach the gospel to him because doing so would make him unclean according to Jewish law. So that's a problem. Uh, God needs to have Peter go there and preach to him, but Peter won't go there because he's keeping kosher and he's keeping clean. He's keeping all the different sacrificial and redemption laws. So God's going to have to change Peter's heart. And this is the way God does it. So we're going to pick up the text now in the book of Acts chapter 10. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, which would have been early afternoon. And then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made dinner ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened up and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descending to him and let down to earth. I kind of picture this as sort of a movie screen. I guess maybe I see things in movie screens and that's why. But I kind of picture this and I want you to see what's on it. The Bible goes on and says this. It says, there were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Now, all these things would have been considered unclean. He wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed to eat any of them. So here's poor Peter. He's so hungry, he fell into a trance. You know, he's starving, he's hangry, and he's, and he's in a trance. And he's hungry and looking at this sheet with a lot of animals, none of which he can eat. And the voice comes to him and, and says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. Now, I believe the reason he says, not so, Lord, here is because he's actually hearing the voice of Jesus Christ. So he says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. Now, some Bibles will say what God has made clean, you shall not call unclean. And you could take that from like Genesis when God first created the world, but I don't think that's accurate. I think actually what this is Jesus saying, I have made it clean. I made it clean by my redemption, by my resurrection, that my blood now makes all that unclean. So he's saying, arise and eat. What I have said is clean. You will not come back and say is unclean. So uh, again, he says, you must go. And so Peter uh, heard this three times. And then the object was taken up into heaven. 
And Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. And behold, as he was wondering, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made their inquiry at Simon's house and stood before the gate. So already now the guys have arrived, the, the, the soldiers, the messengers that, that Cornelius sent. This is going to escort him to Cornelius. And something really amazing is about to happen for the first time. Uh, he's actually going to, Peter is going to reach out to the Gentiles. And this is going to begin the church amongst the Gentiles. So this is an amazing moment in the church. This is something that was predicted a long time ago in Scripture, in fact, which I think kind of sort of begs the question, you know, why now? Why now? And I don't mean, I mean, obviously he has to get it done before, you know, the soldiers come to him. But I mean, why hadn't Jesus told him this before? You know, Jesus knew, Jesus knew when he was walking the earth that his death and resurrection was going to be for all men. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. He even gave some hints to it to Peter in the New Testament. We see this uh, show up in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. But I'm going to read it now from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this is what it says. It says, when Jesus had called the multitude to himself. Now, this is right after what, what's happened is um, the Pharisees have complained because Jesus' disciples had eaten food with unwashed hands. By the way, uh, my wife would complain that too. If you come to dinner without eating, washing your hands, you'll hear about it. Uh, she's our, you know, our local Pharisee, I guess. But uh, anyway, so, uh, but that's what had happened. And Jesus said, you know, you people worry about the wrong things. You worry about this cleanliness thing, and you're not worrying about your heart. And they kind of get a little miffed. And he calls the, the people who are there together and says, listen, hear me and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles the man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. And his disciples come up and say, uh, do you know, by the way, that Jesus made all the Pharisees mad with what you said there? And Jesus couldn't possibly care less. He says, Puh, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. They're not even real leaders. Uh, they're not bothering me. He said, leave them alone. They are blind leading the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. And he says, I don't care if they get mad. But watch, Peter comes up to him now and says, explain this parable to us. So here's an opportunity now where Peter is coming to him and saying, well, that's interesting. You said basically the things you eat that are unclean don't make you unclean. That's kind of what we we're taught. So could you please explain this parable to us? And so Jesus is going to have an opportunity now to kind of clue Peter in, who will later become the head of the church, on what he means by what he says there. And he says this. He says, Jesus said, are you not understanding this? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated. Look, those things which proceed out of the mouth, that comes from the heart, that's what defiles the man. And he goes on and says, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile man, but to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile man. By the way, I will, I will hold to that next time my wife orders me to go wash my hands before I eat. Oh, that doesn't make me unclean. Uh, yeah, maybe. But if I want to eat, I probably have to wash my hands. But what Jesus is saying is, look, it's what's in your heart that matters, right? He's always talking about what's in our heart that matters. And that's what he's, that's what he's trying to teach them. But here's something interesting. Jesus always ate kosher. The, for the time he was born, to the time he was crucified, he always ate kosher. We, we celebrated the, last supper, uh, the, the Passover together uh, as a church. We've done that every year. That's kosher. It's a kosher meal. He always ate kosher. Even though he knew that, that he was going to redeem everything and that would no longer be necessary, he ate kosher. Why? Well, he ate kosher because it was appropriate for him to do so while he was on the earth because he had not yet died and risen again. 
So all the redemption laws were still in effect. In fact, he tells them this also in the book of Matthew. He says, listen, look, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't. I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill them. He says, I came to fulfill the law of the prophets. And when I fulfill them, then things change. But right now, he continues on living a kosher life. So it's absolutely appropriate. So maybe we could forgive Peter for not picking up on this. Maybe, you know, it's natural that Peter, you know, whatever, months after Jesus has risen from the dead, is still living a kosher life and had not yet understood that this extended not just to food, but to Gentiles. But here's the thing I don't understand. There were still these, you know, 40 days. You know, what 40 days, you're asking? Well, there were 40 days that Jesus spent about with his disciples after he was resurrected. Now, at this time, when he was resurrected and he spent these 40 days, he would have already fulfilled the redemption law. In the book of Acts, it says that he spends about 40 days with them. And then in the book of John, you'll see, John says this, Jesus did many things during this time with them, explained many things to them. And if all of them were written down, he says, I suppose the whole world would not have had room enough for the books we would have written. And I'm always thinking, you know, John, <laughs> I get that. I understand there's a lot, but maybe you could have given it a shot. You know? You're on Patmos Island a long time. Maybe like a little bit. I would love to know, wouldn't you, what he said to his disciples in those 40 days? But here's one thing we know he didn't say in those 40 days. He never told Peter about the wonderfulness of bacon. You think he would have, you know? And he said, you know, Peter, you know, there's this thing called bacon. You haven't had it yet, but it's okay now. Because when he was there those 40 days, it was okay. He had fulfilled the law. And in fact, you could, only eat, you could not only eat bacon, Peter. You could take bacon and you could eat it with shrimp. How amazing is that? It's amazing, Peter. Here, just take some bacon, wrap it around a shrimp. You'll love it. You'll thank me for it later. Go ahead, try something. You would think he would do that, and yet he didn't. Why? Why did Jesus not tell Peter it was okay already to not eat the clean food and eat non-kosher food? Why didn't he start already preparing him to be the rock of the church that Jesus knew was coming that was going to reach out not just to Jews but also to Gentiles? Why would he do that? And the answer is that God in his mercy will change us slowly. He changes us slowly in his mercy and it's, it's, it's because he knows that change is painful. I don't know if you've noticed that about change. But when you have to change, it's, it hurts. Not the best place to be. I have a really good picture of this because, uh, and some of you know this guy, this is my German shepherd, Zion. Zion, uh, as you can see the picture on the left here, this is when he thought he was a lapdog. And you can see the next picture. He still thinks he's a lapdog, but he clearly is not. He could not get in Victoria's lap today if he put all four paws on top of each other. It just wouldn't happen, right? He grew very fast in a very short period of time. He's the largest pup of his litter by far, and uh, it actually caused him problems because he grew so fast, he developed a condition called panicetitis, and panicetitis is a condition uh, whereby they literally call growing pains. His bones grow so fast they get inflamed. And he had pain. He had a lot of pain. We had to deal with it. There's times a poor guy could hardly sleep because of the pain in his bones. You know, we had to take care of him. Pain's, it's painful to grow. If you grow too fast, it's very painful. And in God's mercy, he makes sure we don't. I find two things kind of happen amongst Christians that I know. Uh, either they don't want to change at all or they want to change too quickly. 
most people I meet actually don't want to change at all. They're kind of happy where they are, you know. They're like, you know, it's, it's all right. I'm, I kind of like where I am. And here's the thing about that. Uh, a lot of times you'll find out that where you are kind of works for a while. You know, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he finds you where you are. You know, didn't Jesus come and find me and take me as I am? You know, just as I am without one plea. You know, to hold him. You know, yeah, that's right. Jesus comes and he finds you in your muck of your life. And he, and he, and he saves you. But he never leaves you there. The purpose isn't to stay there. The purpose is to bring you out and to have you grow and to have you change. You're not supposed to stay there. You know, one of the worst prayers I've ever heard is the most common prayer I think that gets answered. It goes something like this. Jesus, if you're even real, could you show me? What a horrible prayer that is. Like it starts with no faith at all, right? I don't even know if you're real, God. But if you are, what a horrible, horrible prayer. It's like there's no respect. There's no salutation. There's no anything. It's just this prayer. But when it's said honestly, I've actually heard God has answered that prayer. Probably I've been told that dozens of times by people. That's the prayer that got them saved. If you're real, Jesus, show me. Why? Because Jesus knows that's where they are. That's where they are in their life. That's the most faith they have. They don't have anything else besides that. You know, so that's, Jesus understands that. But five years later, if you're still praying that prayer, there's something seriously wrong with your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, God, I didn't catch it the first hundred times. One more time. I promise I won't blink. One more time, could you show me that you're real? I just want to see it one more time. I won't ask again. Five years later, are you kidding me? So Jesus at some point is going to say, at some point I need you to grow up. I need you to, to move forward with our relationship a little bit. I need you to understand that you're no longer a baby. Paul talks about this um, in the book of Hebrews. He, he talks about how we have to understand that Jesus expects us to grow. He says this. He said, uh, we have a lot to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're no longer even trying to understand by this time, you should be teachers, but in fact, you need someone to teach you all over again. You need even the simple truths of God's word explained to you. You need milk, not solid food. At some point, he's saying, we need to stop being babies. Babies want milk. When's, time to, when's the time to grow up? Man, I, I meet some Christians, they don't want to grow up. They want to be able to say, pray the same faithless prayers that they started with. They don't want, it worked before. You know, I, I pray this prayer this way. And it was answered. I was holding my hand here and the other hand here, and my prayer was answered. I'm always going to do that, and my prayers will always be answered. No, because God's not a genie in a bottle. He's a God who wants to have a relationship with you, and he wants you to grow with him. And if you're not willing to grow with him, you're going to be lost. And, and that's, that's the sad truth of it. It's, it, it the life is not just a pond that like, you're like a leaf that gets dropped into and you just kind of circle around. That's not how it works. It's a river. If you're not swimming against the current, you're going to be pulled away from the current. This world has pull, and it'll pull you away. If you're not working with Jesus, you're not growing with Jesus, you'll be pulled away from Jesus. That's what Paul's describing there. Look, I, I came expecting to find you even better, but you've lost even the simple truths. We talked about that last week. Jesus in his mercy says, look, if you're not using what I have, even that will be taken away from you. We're supposed to grow. But the other side of this is actually almost as bad because the other side of this is the side that says, I want to grow and I want to grow now. I want to grow fast. I want to pray those prayers that I read about in the book of Acts where, you know, walls tumble down. I want to pray prayers that uh, bring fire down. Oh, man, I want to pray that prayer so bad. I love to bring fire down on people. Elijah was so cool. I want to pray the prayer to see the blind, see the lame, 
walk, the sick heal. I want those prayers. But we have to be mature enough to have that because to whom much is given, much is expected. Are you really ready to pray that prayer and have it answered? Are you really ready to step forward on that? Have you really developed the foundation for your faith? And the Hebrew language is interesting because it has pictures built into the roots. And, and one of those is like glory. Glory, if you look at the root of the Hebrew word glory, it actually means weight. So when Jesus says, look, you, you can't, I can't share my glory with you, he's literally saying, if I give it to you, it's too heavy for you. You can't handle it. That's why I'm God. You're not. You can't handle the weight of it. Faith is the same way. To whom much is given, much is expected. If you have this faith to see these kind of mountains move, you better believe there'll be a lot expected of you. Are you really ready for that? We rush sometimes forward. We do that as individuals, and we do that as a church. You know, when we started this church, I had this great idea uh, of what it was going to be, and it isn't. It's not at all what, what I pictured because God has changed my view of church in general, and this church in specific. You know, I've, I've said before the church actually got started by my wife in, in some ways because it was her idea, uh, and then she got staff to agree with her, and those two kept working on me. I fought it for like six months. But even before Victoria first came with the idea, we ought to start a church, which is a really crazy idea. God was working on my heart. And I know that now because I look back and I see it. But I was happy where I was. I was one of these people who didn't want to change. I was content. I finally found some kind of a relaxation mode that I was in. We were involved in a traditional church in the area. And I was serving on the board of elders, and I had a small group that I was leading. Victoria was well-connected in the church. Everybody loved her because of her wonderful work ethic and her attitude. And we were connected, and we were completely happy there. We made friends. Everything was great, except suddenly it wasn't. Suddenly that church started bugging me, and I didn't know why. I was trying to put my finger on it, you know, and I couldn't. And the reason why was because nothing had changed in the church. I was changing. I didn't know, understand any of that. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And that Christmas, Victoria bought me a book for Christmas. It was called The Blessed Church, written by Robert Morse, a former pastor of ours. We had gone to his church back when he had 300 people going. Uh, now I think they have 20,000 people coming. He's one of the probably five largest churches in America. And he wrote a book that talked about Gateway Church and how they started it and everything. And most of it, to be honest, didn't apply to me because, you know, Gateway Church is not a big church. It's a small city. And an awful lot in that book kind of talks about how they manage their small city. None of that mattered to me because that's not where I was. I wasn't even starting a church back then. But the first chapter was really golden because he talked about the journey to start Gateway Church. He was an associate pastor of another church in the area. He'd been there, I think, for 12 years completely happy then all of a sudden one day this discontent started growing in him and I remember reading I think man that's me that describes me and he described how he even got angry at the church which was where I was and he didn't know why which is where I was and then he said the reason for it is God was calling me apart he has to do that right because you don't want to leave a place you like he has to start making you not like it and what he's doing he's changing your heart about certain things because he's going to call you apart he said what you need to understand is what he's calling you apart to do. In order to do that, what you need to do is sit down and write about everything you don't like about the ministry you're in or the church you're in. Right? And that was beautiful advice because I didn't know where to go with my feelings and all of a sudden I had a place. I needed to sit down and write everything I don't like about this church. And let me tell you something, that was easy. You know, that was really easy because I, I had that 
on the tips of my fingers. And so I sat down and I wrote a, a document, which some of you may have seen, I don't know. Uh, it's called, What is Killing the American Church? And, and I started to write about all these things that were in my heart about what I didn't like about where I was been. Not just that specific church, but some churches I'd been in before then too. All these things were kind of going around, I, you know, what I didn't like. Uh, and I actually took it too far. I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a minute. But I want to read a section of it, if I might, uh, that I found. Sometimes I, I kind of go back and reread these things. I don't much, but I wanted to read this one as we came to our fifth anniversary. And as I was reading through it, I thought, well, some of this I agree with, some of it I don't. But I want to give you the genesis a little bit. This is give you kind of an idea of the DNA uh, of Spirit Chapel a little bit, because you'll probably see some of us in what I was writing here. But I just want to be honest about it. Not everything I wrote do I even agree with today? But, but let me go ahead and, and share some of, some of this with you, if I may. It's hard to watch something that matters to you die before your very eyes. That's how I feel about the Christian church in America today. Once the most dominant force in American culture has drifted further and further away from relevancy to the point where in a few decades, a preacher will have all the influence of a high school librarian. I wrote that back when there actually were high school librarians. I'm not sure there are anymore. Um, but I'm not speaking about the church political influence in America. I couldn't possibly care less about that. The tragedy is that the American church is losing its ability to touch the lives of individuals. It no longer protects marriages. It no longer guides young people making decisions. No longer causes men to look at their lives and repent. Of all the statistics I've read about the church in America lately, none of them is more damning than this. The rate of divorce among Christians is exactly the same as the rate of non-believers. Where's the difference? When the world looks at the church and says, why bother? It's hard to argue with them. The American church is salt that has lost its flavor, a light that is losing to the darkness, and a city that should be on the hill, but is mired in the valley below instead. A lot of good people have been wringing their hands over the church's trajectory for decades. But to the question of, what can we do about this? There seems to be no good answer. The general consensus is the death of the American church is due to societal changes. This is utter nonsense. To suggest that the Christian church is the victim of circumstances beyond our control is to ignore the history of a church that has prevailed against all odds. This church planted with the blood of Jesus' crucified hands and established by the power of his resurrected body did not thrive for 2,000 years only to fade now. It conquered the Roman Empire, but we're supposed to believe it cannot withstand Facebook, Snapchat, and iPhones. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what America is into. Jesus told us that he would build his church on a rock and the gates of hell could not prevail against it. And when he said these things, he knew that the internet, iPhones, and tweets were coming. None of this surprises him. Neither an indolent society nor a hostile government can stop the Christian church. If it is dying in America today, we need to stop looking under rocks for excuses masquerading as reasons and start looking in the mirror. Because the truth is if the church is dying, it's because we are killing it. Us, not them. Not Hollywood, not Washington, D.C. We're killing it. The very Christians who are going to church every week, we're not the victims. We're the problem. Now, before I go any further, let me say that in many ways, I am exactly the problem that I'm describing here. I am a traditionalist at heart, the son of a Presbyterian preacher, the grandson of a missionary to Egypt. I grew up in the church, and I love it. All of it. I love the hymns. I love the pipe organ. I love the doxology in the Apostles' Creed. I love having a bulletin to follow along with. I love hearing a whole church recite the Lord's Prayer. Man, I love it all. But I am praying today that God takes it all away because the fact is that what I love doesn't matter. 
it's not my church. It's Jesus' church, and he loves people. So if these things are keeping them away, then they have to go. We need new ideas. We need creative energy. We need to ask ourselves daily, am I giving God my best? In Matthew 22, Jesus commands us to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Does that describe what is happening in churches today? Following traditions, whether they are 100 years old or five, is not creative. It takes no thought to do, the way things, to do things the way we always have, and it takes little thought to do the ways things are described in some book. If there is one thing we should know about Jesus Christ, it's he was not a big fan of formulas. If we are not using all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for God, we are failing as Christian leaders. Yes, it will take effort to do this. There will be a whole cycle of learning, experimenting, failing, and fine-tuning. It's hard work. But I am telling you, we are in a war with the world for the hearts and minds of the people living around us. And the world is winning. This is not about being slick. This is about giving God the attention he deserves. It's about being as creative in what we do for God today as Bach, John Wesley, and Michelangelo were in their day. It's about as being as creative for our God as the entertainment community is for their gods. If Apple wants their employees to be insanely great, how can we say pretty good is good enough for Jesus? I'm not talking about changing the message of Jesus in any way. I'm simply saying that we need to put the message into the dialect of the people around us. We need to reach the world. Traditions be damned. We cannot afford to be a religious historical society, keeping our traditions alive for all to see. So that's what I wrote, and that's where we started. But I went on from there because I believed as I wrote that that the answer to it was the modern church because the modern church is different. They kind of threw away all the traditions, but they threw away some things that they shouldn't have, in my opinion. And I'm not trying to criticize modern churches or traditional churches. I'm just telling you the journey we're on as a church. Because if you go into modern churches today, you'll see no cross. In fact, I had a conversation with two people, Mike Medved and Scott Schmidt, who lead worship for other churches in the area. And they both, just this past week, both of them reached out to me and said, it was really hurting them a little bit because so many churches they go into have no cross. And it's not like they forgot it. You know, it's not like, hey, you know what? There's no cross. You're like, oh, darn, did we forget to put that up? You know, no, that's not what it is. It's they're saying, yeah, we deliberately didn't do that. Because we find that the cross has, you know, a little bit of baggage associated with it. And people come in and, and it just kind of bothers them a little bit. And it offends them. We, they, so it's easier for them to come here if they don't see it. Mike Medved called me. He was telling me about a church that told him that. And he says this to me. Pastor Mark, isn't the cross supposed to offend people? <laughs> yeah, it is. In fact, I'll go further than that. I'll say this. I'll say a gospel that does not offend people cannot change people. Why would you change for something you agree with? There's no need for change. We have to understand there's some things we have to hold on to, and we have to hold on to them tightly. We can change, but we can't change what the church was supposed to be as defined by Jesus. Today's modern church has an interesting viewpoint. They talk about reaching the unchurched. It's become two categories of people, the churched and the unchurched. But that's not what's in the Bible. The Bible talks about the lost and the saved. The Bible talks about sinners and saints. Church was never supposed to be the destination. Church was supposed to be the vehicle that took us to the destination, which is Jesus Christ. But what happened was I grabbed all the books. I subscribed to all the blogs. If we started Spirit Chapel, I, oh, I know what we're going to do. And I was following them, and it stopped working for me in about year two. 
In fact, we were on a steady decline in our, in our membership and our, our attendance. We had gone down to single digits. I'll never forget that. And Victoria and I began having lots and lots of fights. I don't even know how many times Victoria and I had this fight and how many times I threatened to close Spirit Chapel in year three. You know, it's just, we weren't growing. And in my mind, it was firmly rooted. If you are healthy, you will grow. And growth is measured by how many people are coming. That was just in my mind. That's how it goes. That, that model, that formula. You are blessed. If you know you're blessed because people are coming, that's how you know. And I was just sure of it. And so that means I was sure we weren't being blessed. I said, Victoria, what are we doing here? God clearly isn't blessing us. We should have shut it down, you know. Now, I had personally signed a lease for five years. In year three, what am I going to do? I said, I'll turn it into a coffee shop. I'll serve coffee to nine people. I don't mind that. But preaching to nine people just seemed wrong somehow. The juice is not worth the squeeze. Listen, our family, our family put the church first. And we don't regret doing that, but it was hard, you know. That's it. Like I said, if, if you see Victoria, give her a hug. Because women, you need to know something. If you think about your house and how you've made it a home and the things you've done to make it better, you know, uh, picture this. Picture that house, but you only get to work on it four hours a week on Saturday. And that's only if the church doesn't have something else scheduled on Saturday. And that's it. Four hours a week. Good luck. That's where Victoria's house is because she put this church first too. I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. I'm saying we did that. But I'm not doing that, I told her, if God isn't blessing it. There's no sense in doing that if God's not going to bless it. And he's not blessing it. I know that because there's only nine people coming, single digits. I just can't deal with that. And so finally, Victoria, you know, she go off and pray, God, you can't let him go spirit chapel. She just knew in her heart. Even though it's hard, even though she was sacrificing too, and she understood what I was saying, she was saying, you cannot, you know, let him do this. And she kept telling me, you can't, you know, close this church. I said, I don't know. I don't think God cares. Nine people. I don't think he cares. You know, nine people, we can have them over for dinner. We don't need a church. It's a lot easier. We can, we'll clean the house then. Let's clean the house and have them over for dinner. We don't need a church. And then God got a hold of my heart. Because in the middle of all this, I told her, I said, you know what? Here's the deal. Okay, I promise you, I won't close the church. I don't know why. We'll keep going. I'll slog through as we watch the people keep dwindling, and we'll slog through. That's fine. I'll do that. But on year five, on the anniversary of our church in November 2018, if we only have the same amount of people we have now, in fact, I said, if we don't have more people in our church than we had when we opened the church, I'm out. So I had circled this day, folks, not as a day of celebration. This was supposed to be the day that Spirit Chapel closed. Except God got a hold of my heart. And he started showing me that my problem was, my vision was the modern church. He said, you're right about this. This is wrong, but this isn't where you need to look. You need to look at my church. And in God's church, things are measured differently. I don't know if you've been noticing, but it was surprising to me as we went through the book of Acts, how many of the stories in Acts deal with one person? We're doing it right now. This is Cornelius, the centurion, one person. We talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, one person. We, we talked about Stephen, one person. We talked about Simon, the sorcerer, one person. God goes out of his way for one person. Have you noticed this? Because in God's economy, one person matters. Jesus says, if there's 99 sheep here, and there's one out there, that's the one I'm going after. One, not 99. One, God's church 
is built on one. And he started reaching me with that. And I'll tell you where, where that's, this really came home. And, and in fact, it, it shows up in a sermon that I preached. And when everything kind of changed for me, it, I, for the first time or a second time, I re-preached a sermon that I already preached. And it was, I did it because it's my favorite sermon. Now, in case you're curious, it's my favorite sermon, the best sermon I think I ever preached. Uh, no doubt about it. The best sermon I ever preached, I thought, was it's not about the giant. It's a story of David versus Goliath in the series that we did on David. I love that sermon. I loved it when I preached it. Still like it a lot today. But when I went to re-preach it, God was working on my heart. And he showed me that there's an epilogue that sermon needed that I had forgotten the first time. And it's there now when it's re-preached. In fact, I changed the name of the sermon later. And you can go back and watch it, but I'll tell you what you'll see. Uh, let me catch you up in case you forgot your story of David versus Goliath. But what happened was the Israel army and the Philistine army were in a standoff. They pulled up their entire armies. All their mights of both nations were facing off against each other. The problem was they're facing off against each other in front of a ravine. And that meant whoever attacks loses. Because you're going to go down the ravine and back up the other side. And when you're coming up the other side, they're going to advance and you're going to be fighting an uphill battle heard that expression, I'm sure. And if you have no superiority in the army, an uphill battle is a losing battle for you. Both kings knew that. That's why they stared at each other across the ravine for 40 days and simply shouted at each other. That's why Goliath wandered out and started shouting. They were all doing it. He just made it personal. Everybody was shouting at each other insults, but no one would attack because to attack meant to lose. For 40 days, it was a stalemate. Everything changes on the 41st day. Do you know why? What changed? Was it Gandalf returning with the army of the dead, like in some trilogy from Tolkien? No. Was it some kind of new weapon they discovered, catapult that threw flaming bolts? No. Did King Saul get some kind of revelation from God how he could sneak around behind him and attack from behind, some kind of new brilliant strategy? No. After 40 days of nothing, everything changed because one heart dedicated to God walked on the battlefield. It changed everything. It changed the course of history. It became the most famous battle in history. It was one heart dedicated to God. That was it. And he wasn't even a man. He was like 15, 16 years old. But his heart was dedicated to God. And when I realized that was missing from the sermon the first time I preached it, I felt God asking me, will you keep Spirit Chapel open for one heart? One heart. And it took me a while to say yes to that. But I did. I said, okay, God, one heart. As long as you keep providing for us so we can keep the doors open, as long as my heart's still beating, if one heart needs us, we'll be here. And then I said, but if it's not, if it's just Victoria and me on, on year five, I quit, you know. It, it's, it's miraculous, really, honestly, with my prayer life that God hasn't killed me by now. It's, he's truly a merciful God. Uh, maybe I make him laugh. I don't know. That's true, though, as I said. But I'll stay open for one heart. And that's when we started growing back again. I, I'm convinced that God took me there for a reason. Because he's taking us on a journey, not, not necessarily where we wanted to go, you know, there's a big mega church or something. I don't, I don't know what you expect when you come in here. But I believe he's going to take us and show us what the authentic church looks like. And I don't know what traditional churches are going to do. And I don't know what modern churches are going to do. 
And to be completely honest with you, I don't care. I know the journey that we're on. So I want to just close with one other thing. Um, you know that we've been praying for a building because we want everybody under one roof. It's our heart's desire to have everybody under one roof. And we want to have a place where we can grow. And we've been praying for it. And I sat down, some of you know this, a little bit over a year ago with a banker, vice president of a bank, talked to him about you know, our desire. And he was saying, you, you won't be able to do it. In today's economy and climate, you will not be able to do it uh, because banks don't want to close on, foreclose on churches. So they make it harder for them to get loans. And you will never get a loan because you're a non-denominational church and you're the only pastor. And if anything happens to you, the church is in trouble. And that means that no bank is going to trust you with a loan. Just telling them how it is. can't happen. And yet, in the past two weeks, we have opportunities in two different places where our church can go and grow. Let me tell you what happened three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I was walking around a building that uh, I've known about for some time. It used to be a church. Some of you know where I'm talking about. And I've been walking around praying if God would give it to us because it used to be a church. It still is a church. It's still God's. I don't care who owns the deed. It's God's. And I was praying, and I actually started putting my hands on the locked doors and praying, Lord, would you give us this? It's yours. Would you give us this? You know we can't afford it. You know what our bank account looks like. And you know I can't get along, but will you give this to us? I've been praying that really for some time, you know. I marched around it for seven days. I swear to God, I marched around it for seven days uh, and prayed that prayer. And it just, you know, I just felt like it was right there, but it wasn't. And then I got the sense that God was telling me to stop praying my words and start praying his. And so I thought, wow, that's a great idea. I wish I'd brought a Bible. What kind of a preacher is doing this prayer walk without a Bible? But I pulled out my phone, and I did a quick search. Open door scripture. That's what I searched for. And all these options came up, you know, Proverbs and Psalms. I'm, like, looking through, you know, spinning through. And all of a sudden, I saw one in the book of Revelation. And I thought, that's me. I need a revelation. I'm going to read that one. I had no idea what it said. I swear I didn't. So I clicked on the link, and it comes up on my phone, and this is what came up for me to read out loud and declare in God's name. This is Jesus talking. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I started to cry because I could feel God as answering the prayer. He said, I know you're a small church. I know you have little strength. It's okay. I'm the one who holds the keys. And I'm going to open a door for you that no man can shut. Although some men may try. No man can shut. And here's why. This is the best part of this verse to me. It's like a mission statement for this church. Here's why. Because you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. We do keep his word here. We, we teach from the Bible. We preach the Bible. We believe the Bible. We believe it from Genesis to maps. We will never, ever not keep his word. And we, we read it, and we believe it, and we follow it. That's, a, that's the, the creed of Spirit Chapel. It is based on the Bible, but we have also never denied the name of Jesus. We will always have the cross in this church because the cross is why we're in this church. The cross of Jesus, empty, 
not with a body, empty, that shows the resurrection power of the Lord is why we can stand here. It's funny, we were looking at that other building, there was a church, and, and I got a call from Scott. He says, tell me, because he saw a picture of it, tell me if you get that church, you're keeping that cross. <laughs> and I said, uh, where? He says, in the front, there's this big, on the wall, this whole thing's taken up in the back wall, uh, front, front of the sanctuary, has this big, long cross on the wall there. I said, no, I'm taking it down. I'm going to put it in the back of the church. He said, why? I said, because I'm going to put up a cross that lights up in front of the church because I don't want people to miss it. And if they're offended, let's talk about it because the cross of Jesus is why we're here. We will never deny the name of Jesus. That's who we are. And we are on a journey to do that. We're on a journey to preach his word and to hold up his name on high. And that's the purpose of this church. And I believe he's going to open doors for us, not just from buildings. I believe he's going to open up doors in hospitals. He's going to open up doors in schools. He's going to open up doors at work that other people will be amazed that we have open for us, but he's going to open these doors that cannot be shut. And we're going to march through these doors, lifting up the name of Jesus and proclaiming his words, and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Would you all please pray with me?